An early look to the Cricket World Cup qualifier, Cambodian controversy at the Southeast Asian Games. International competition turns to China, while Japan hosts a Sri Lankan emerging side in Sano. All that and more this week on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Emerging Cricket Podcast. We're closing in towards bringing up 200 episodes of the Emerging Cricket Podcast. There's been uh, quite a few more audio productions that we've done, but I think this one is regarded by us at least as EC Pod 192. Joined by Nick Skinner, as always, to talk everything in the emerging game. And thankfully, a bit more chat about cricket on the field this week. Uh, first of all, Nick, uh, how's things in the Northern Hemisphere today? Well, I've uh, been spending a lot of time on the phone with various visa agencies. Uh, so that's not been very fun. But, you know, that's the life of a foreigner in uh, <laughs> in Europe. I'm very jealous of all my European colleagues who can just uh, come over from, you know, Germany or Poland or wherever and just start, you know, living here and don't need to worry about any of this nonsense. But uh, that's how it goes. Um, 192. Yeah, it's uh, it makes me think of... Do you remember when Kumar Sangakkara hit a magnificent 192 at, uh, at the Bell Reef Oval in a series against Australia a few years back? Ah, uh, yes. He was dudded as well. He was dudded a yeah. double time, I think, for memory. Dodgy decision as well. Yeah, very unlucky. I think uh, for memory, it was a caught behind and the ball struck his shoulder or helmet or something. And But uh, yeah, so it's funny how these numbers stick in your mind, right? Like 192 to me equals Kumar Sangakkara hitting lovely cover drives. We're coming into some uh, Pakistan high scores in ODI mm. numbers here. I think Syed Anwar is not far away. Fakhar Zaman a couple of times. Or um, uh, was it Coventry from Zimbabwe yes. who equaled it randomly and then never scored another ton again? Yeah, we're, we're getting very nerd pledgy, almost final word uh, podcast-esque with, Ooh, this, yes. <laughs> with this chat. Shout out to those boys. That's that's something I, I wish we'd thought of, to be honest, the, the nerd pledge idea, but uh, good, good for them. Yeah, you know when, they, <laughs> when people take a great idea and you just... I wish I wish I thought about that first. Mm. I think they've they've had that longer than we've been around as a podcast. But glad to be talking cricket with you. And yeah, the final word boys also did an episode on the uh, the ICC revenue distribution model, like we did uh, last week. Probably a little bit of housekeeping, I suppose, from last week's show. And as mentioned at the top, thankfully we've got more actual cricket to talk about this week. But a lot of great feedback from last week in regards to the show. There's a couple of good questions that actually came out of it from a couple of keen listeners and uh, kept the conversation and, and the discourse on it going, which I, I felt it might be worth sort of bringing up again just to kind of tie a bow on everything. I got a great question from Jugal, uh, who listened to the pod and, and asked a, a smart question, a pretty well thought out question, given the uh, advent of, of franchises and their role in cricket and what cricket will most likely be down the line. And, and the question basically came to a head in, in asking, you know, isn't there a chance that the franchises in time might do a better job of spreading the game in a similar way to, say, the NBA or MLB does, um, which has private ownership? And I thought it was a great question, Nick, and you might want to sort of kick this off. And I saw Burtis and, and Russell Degnan once again chime in with their answers, and those two guys are two excellent people to talk about this subject. It's definitely quite a question to, to bring up because we've seen it actually in the emerging game. You know, the Zalmi group in 
uh, Pakistan's gone in other places across Europe and across the world. We, we see Kolkata Knight Riders uh, involved in a few different franchises and one coming up in the, well, the first, the inaugural uh, Major League Cricket, as well as a couple of other uh, IPL franchises, the Texas Super Kings uh, and Chennai there as well, Nick. I think it's a fair question. And, you know, maybe if we do go down that route of franchise ownership in regards to developing the game, there is a viable pathway where we do see the game being developed around the world albeit by franchises and not necessarily by international cricket yeah it, it is kind of an interesting question because as we were discussing last week you know it's in the interests of the franchise owners for there to be a market for their product in other countries right if they want to you know if they want to sell their product the super kings or the mumbai indians or whatever overseas well then there needs to be a decent number of people who actually care about cricket in those countries so to to some extent they need to have a cricket scene overseas to keep growing so that incentive exists but the problem is as bertus pointed out the other kind of more short-term incentive is that uh, a lot of these franchises Uh, are leases rather than being permanently owned so in that sense there's kind of an expiry date on any of the development work they do and and then you know they they don't necessarily get to see the benefits of it when the lease runs out so that's one question and then i mean ultimately these are profitable enterprises and i mean at some point it's difficult to expect sort of profit-driven entities to be altruistic Sometimes when your incentives align, they can do something that's useful, you know, enlightened self-interest. But yeah, I mean, I tend to think that these franchises will do more of focusing on top-level stuff. So they might run even something like an academy to try and recruit athletes and find a production pathway for talent, that kind of thing, which is useful to some extent, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's kind of a broad appeal of the game uh, in you know these places where they're where they're building academies, I mean we've seen in the U.S. there's a lot of these academies around, uh, which you know tend to produce decent cricketers, but <laughs> they still have a lot of trouble breaking into the general sporting landscape. And I tend to think that's not a particularly good model. Whereas this is a thing, the ICC, is, as, as I said last week, is much better placed to be doing this development work because it has the pathway structures in place already. Whereas obviously the BCCI Cricket Australia, ECB, etc., have not been fantastic at spreading the game, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but the ICC is the institution that should be doing this. And a franchise cricket team, even, you know, you mentioned the Zalmi, and I think what they're doing is very interesting with the kind of international Zalmi clubs, you know, playing and, and you know, meeting up and, and having this kind of uh, network around the world. But that's still not really the same thing as, you know, a comprehensive pathway ladder for international teams and being able to develop an actual market generally for the sport. So I guess <laughs> that's a long-winded way of saying that I agree with Bertus, basically, that quite possibly the franchises will end up being a bit better than what we have now. But that's just because what we have now is not very good. Uh, look, I, I think it, it could absolutely be the path that we eventually go down. Uh, and again, just to kind of reiterate last week, you know, it would be naive of us to say that cricket would be popular or cricket would reach the, the general levels of high sort of public consciousness if we didn't have either international cricket or franchise cricket. I think it's just about finding that balance when push eventually will come to shove on this. And you would hope that, you know, in future 
financial models and in future negotiations with FTPs and whatnot, we find a solution that benefits everyone. That's, I think, the hope. And here, from an emerging cricket standpoint, there might just be enough sort of franchise leagues to go around to help a lot of these uh, international players from emerging countries, you know, be able to make cricket a full-time uh, profession. That, that's what we would like to see and to bring the game to a level of professionalism because it's important that we have that as well. You know, if it's, it's another wave of what professional cricket is. You know, we had the Packer wave in the 70s with World Series cricket and we're coming to a new wave where we will see a, a future with a, a sort of a hybrid franchise to, to international um, model. Again, we talked about it at length last week, so ensure to go back and uh, listen to all of that in case you missed any of it. Plenty to, to sort of dissect from everything going on uh, in the boardrooms of the international game and, and also with uh, the big boards at play or you know a certain big est board out of the international governing bodies uh, with quite a lot of influence in the inter- international game. Let's move ahead to, well, still action off the field, but in in preparation for some action on the field. We've got some squads coming in and some preparation for uh, the Cricket World Cup qualifier, the ICC Men's Cricket World Cup qualifier for 2023, held in Zimbabwe. As we record, it's a month away, the 18th of June. Scotland have named their squad as well as the West Indies. We've seen some prep tours in the form of Zimbabwe hosting actually a, a Pakistan Touring side, Pakistan not at the qualifier, having already qualified for the tournament, but good preparation for Zimbabwe there. We'll start with uh, Scotland squad, who they've named, and I think the big story so far in the build-up to this tournament, Nick, is that Scotland have struggled to gain a release for a number of their county players, and it's meant that they've had to sort of pick a couple of backups. Scotland, uh, off the top of my head, missing Michael Jones, Brad Wheel, and Josh Davey, three key players of the Scotland squad. They're already missing uh, Kyle Kutzer, who's retired from international cricket, as well as Callum McLeod, who who gave international cricket away some time ago. Probably not the strongest squad we could see from Scotland here on paper. They do have some international experience coming into the squad in the form of Ali Evans and Adrian Neal, although it must be said that their performances on the field for Scotland have left a little bit to be desired in recent times and there was a reason why the likes of Davey and others were were picked in front of them. It begs the question, and and we'll probably have to ask the same question again when the Dutch squad comes out for this tournament. We know that the likes of Baz Delater will likely play and, and a couple of those guys will get releases from their counties. But it begs the question, you know, how hard is it for, for these players being put in this position who are told, yeah, you can probably go and play international cricket for your country, although deep down every county around the county system has all the aces here, Nick, in terms of their contracts in years going forward and and the forward planning. And ultimately, it gives the uh, counties a lot of leverage to to tell these guys not to go and play international cricket and to simply uh, adhere to the, the contracts that they signed up to. Yeah, I mean, we don't know what happens specifically in this case. Often the story is that the players themselves chose not to go, which is, you know, varying degrees of true. It's complicated, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's never You're never going to get a straight answer there. And, and it makes me think of a little while ago, uh, at one point when the Dutch were trying to get hold of Ackerman, I actually emailed Leicestershire to ask kind of what their stance on the matter was. And they, they claimed that the Dutch had never actually sent a request, which 
you know, reading between the lines, my theory here is that in that case, and quite possibly in a lot of other cases with these counties, is that they kind of maybe they, they test the waters and see whether, you know, how the counties are feeling about it. And, you know, they don't even bother sending a formal request for mandatory release unless they're kind of sure that the counties are okay with it, which, <laughs> yeah, so in that case, they haven't technically blocked them from playing they're just it, it's the implication you know if you think about it the that scene in uh, it's always sunny in philadelphia you know oh. it's, it's the implication um, and yeah it's it's very unfortunate that it's it comes to that but at the end of the day these these county teams are, are paying their bills so y- as ryan campbell said when he was on the other side of the fence coaching the netherlands rather than durham um <laughs> He made the point that basically you can only ask a certain number of times and you, you pretty much have to pick your battles. But then, you know, by that token, surely the World Cup qualifier is the place where you would want your best players available, right? So, yeah, I think also it's potentially uh, a bit believable that in that this case, the players actually weren't that keen. And I mean, <laughs> Cricket Scotland, we haven't really done a, an episode on it yet, but Cricket Scotland is uh, all drama all the time right now. So quite possibly... Davy Jones and Wheel just kind of felt, eh, don't, you know, give that a wide berth for the moment and sort of knuckle down in their county teams. I, I don't know. So in this specific case, I'm not sure what happened, but yeah, generally, you know, it's kind of funny. We're talking about the franchise leagues taking over and, you know, monopolizing players and stuff. Well, that's been the reality for international associate cricket for years. And I don't know, now the boot's on the other foot. It seems like the, you know, the English... And, and other established full members are starting to get worried about it and they don't like it very much. Well, you know, try being Scotland. Bringing it back to the side on paper here in Scotland, it, it puts a lot of responsibility on Richie Barrington's shoulders to score mm. a bulk of Scotland's runs. Uh, looking at, at someone like George Munsey too, who we know can attack. And at times in League Two, he it looked like you didn't have enough fielders to curb George Munsey with his array of shots, you know, the likes of, of reverse sweeps and laps and to shots over the top straight down the wicket. He was a class above. What this does, though, with no Michael Jones, who's been a bit of a revelation for Scotland, maybe more so in the T20 game than in 50-over cricket, but it puts a lot of responsibility on the likes of Munsey's shoulders and, and Richie Barrington's. We see uh, young Tom McIntosh coming up through the under-19 system. Um, looking to the bowlers, as mentioned at the top, you know you, you do have Neil and, and Evans coming in who do have marked international experience. But again, you're probably putting the responsibility more on Safian Sharif's shoulders there to kind of spearhead that attack. Good spin in the form of Tahir, Hamza Tahir and Mark Watt and Michael Leesk. You would think that as the wickets get a bit more tired, Scotland spinners might play a bit more of a part. And, and to be honest, in that regard, they're actually quite strong. So, look, I would not have them as one of the two teams that I think will qualify. Though in saying that, they, they will mount a serious challenge like they did for the tournament four years ago. or The tournament was actually five years ago now where they were so unlucky not to qualify against uh, a West Indies team. And we all know what happened in that particular outing in the uh, 2018 Cricket World Cup qualifier. I don't think we need to to bring back bad memories. But the West Indies have named their squad for the tournament as well. Still no Shimron Hetmeyer in the setup here. Feels weird talking about Shimron Hetmeyer on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, but here we are with the West Indies <laughs> here at the qualifier. Look, to be honest, I think this team is beatable at this level. And I think there are the collective strength across the 10 teams at this tournament make it incredibly hard for the West Indies to even qualify for the World Cup proper. I think 
if I'm going to be honest, I'll put my hand up and say that they're probably the third or the fourth best team on paper here at this tournament on current form. And, and given the situation that Cricket West Indies is in at the moment, they've appointed a new coach in Darren Sammy, who I think is probably a decent fit, given that I think he'll get the best out of the, the boys playing for him. But he doesn't have any international coaching experience. He's done some white ball franchise stuff in the past. He needs to hit the ground running. They've got a prep tour in uh, UAE, which will help them find their feet, you would like to think, for their sake. And I think that'll give us a pretty good indication of, of where they're at, given that you know UAE are also at the tournament coming up as well. A penny for Hayden Walsh Jr.'s thoughts, mm. given that he's not in this West Indies squad. And he hasn't been in the West Indies setup for a little while now, but... You know, to leave and to forego USA opportunities and, you know, they're playing in this competition too, to, to play for the West Indies, only to be pushed out by quite a good group of uh, spinners, actually. When you look at the side, you know, Akil Hussain's one of the best left-arm orthodox spinners in the world. Yannick Carrier uh, is a guy that's made a name for himself in the, in the last little bit. And you've got Ross and Chase bowling his sort of part-time off-breaks, although... In the test team, he's almost a, a frontline spinner. So, interested to get your take, Nick, on, on the West Indies team. I, I honestly probably don't have them in the top two. Not saying that they can't qualify. I think they'll they'll mount you know a, a reasonable challenge. But you know the likes of say Zimbabwe at home, uh, Sri Lanka is probably the best team there. Uh, the Netherlands, who they played in Super League, and and Netherlands had their moments and and did lose those matches against the West Indies last year. But you know, providing that they have most of their team available, they they could give the West Indies are pushed to assuming that they're either in the same group or they meet in the Super Sixes. There's no guarantee here that the West Indies uh, progress to the World Cup by any means, Nick. No, and I mean, the grouping is kind of interesting. We've There's sort of some rumours coming out about who's going to be in which group. We think Group A is going to be West Indies, Zimbabwe, Netherlands and Nepal uh, with USA as well. And Group B, Sri Lanka, Ireland, Scotland, Oman, UAE. Uh, I, th- I think there's a pretty good chance it might be that, but we, we haven't had anything officially confirmed as of this recording. But assuming that's right... The West Indies are pretty vulnerable because three teams go through from each group to the Super 6 phase, but with points carried forward, if they drop a game or two even, they'll really struggle to make it out of the Super 6s into the finals. So, yeah, I mean, Netherlands, yes, they lost all their Super League matches, but they were getting better over that whole Super League, and, and we saw them improving you know, almost in real time. Also, thinking back to the 2018 event, the Netherlands, they were ahead on DLS for a long time in that game, and then they sort of had a bit of a choke, and and the middle order collapsed, and they ended up losing, but they were a decent shot of beating the West Indies for a bit, even five years ago. Again, it depends, as you say, which players they can get released and and who's available. Same problem as Scotland, but yeah, I mean, Zimbabwe, they've just beaten the Pakistan A team in in the one-day team, and they've got some pretty exciting talent coming through. I'm I'm very interested, actually, to see how Madanda goes for Zimbabwe. We can maybe talk about that at, at a later date, but you know Zimbabwe have been yeah, they've they've been in so much trouble for so long. It's it's just nice to see them looking kind of promising for a change. But yeah, honestly, so my hot take here in the group A, assuming that the the groups are as we think they might be, is that the West Indies. If the USA win a game, it'll be against the West Indies. Now, this this might be a bit of a wild prediction, but it's it's more or less based on the fact that the West Indies at times can be a bit complacent against lower-ranked opposition. And if they're in a sort of uh, why we're we even at the qualifier sort of mood when they come up against the USA, I think the USA have a good shot. But yeah, in that group, the the West Indies should come out of the group. But then yeah, Super Six is is a big question. Which yeah, it's kind of funny because Sri Lanka. You know, the other 
traditional full member who've uh, who've dropped down to the qualifier. They played very badly at the first half of the Super League, and then they managed to get their act together towards the end, and, and they look a much more settled team, uh, a lot more convincing on the field. So I, I think Sri Lanka will probably sail through. But yeah, everyone else, very up in the air. Unfortunate that Scotland are missing so many players, and I think someone like a Callum McLeod probably still would have added a lot of value to this team, but obviously he, he called it a day a year or so ago, maybe. So that's unfortunate. But yeah, every time I look at these... <laughs> this qualifier and these groups and the teams, I, I just can't think, you know, who's going to... Everyone's very beatable. Sri Lanka are the favourites, but yeah, other than that, jeez. Won't get a whole lot of disagreement from me and I'm just a bit upset that no one around the world listening saw my eyebrows raise when your hot take of uh, the West Indies losing to USA came through there. I, I don't necessarily hate that. I, I think there's merit in that argument. There is a reputation there that, yeah, the West Indies do struggle at times to, to lift in, in matches like that. And in global tournaments in recent times with matches of, you know, perceivably more context, shall we say, the West Indies have struggled. They struggled at the T20 World Cup last year. They didn't get out of the first round group. They struggled in, in Super League for the most part of it. They also struggled with overrates. I think they had points deducted from their points tally. And ultimately, they found themselves outside of eighth place. And it's, it's a saying in uh, a lot of American sports talk shows, and maybe Peter Della Pena will get a, a kick out of this, but you are what your record says you are is the saying. And I think the last sort of 12 months to, to two years have shown us that the West Indies aren't a particularly good team. Individually, there is some class there in the form of someone like Kyle Mayers who's come on in leaps and bounds individually. Shea Hope is, is going to be such a, a rock at the top of the order and he almost needs to go at a strike rate of 60 and, and just ensure that he makes a, a good score just to kind of put them on the straight and narrow and have a lot of guys come through a little bit later and and make runs quickly at the back end. But yeah, we have a fascinating tournament on our hands. I can give, I, I suppose it's an exclusive here with you, Nick, in that the groups will be official from the ICC most likely early next week. That's the word that I've been told. And we'll see the, the fixtures. And I think the timing of the fixtures too, when we do get some of those big games at different stages of the tournament, you know, that will be quite important. And we'll make a point of that as we do get a little bit closer. But as mentioned, uh, the tournament goes from June 18 to July 9. We'll have the final two spots of the 10-team Cricket World Cup decided. And as mentioned last week, uh, the tournament will go to 14 teams in Africa for 2027. Let's move on. There's been quite a bit of controversy at the Southeast Asian Games. I think we can safely say, even with action on the field. I know last week we probably opened a can of worms with the topics of conversation that we had there, but there was more controversy on the field this week, as mentioned in the Southeast Asian Games, which has concluded it was being played out in Cambodia. And it seems like they are the antagonists in the story here. Complete domination in terms of what it looks like from the outside. It was a pretty dominant display uh, on the men's side of things of this particular competition. We'll talk about the, the women's side in a moment, but a lot of controversy to unpack here and it deals with how players qualify for events if at the Southeast Asian Games aligns with eligibility in ICC matches. This is a whole... It's a whole labyrinth, Nick. It is a whole labyrinth of controversy. Cambodia thumping Malaysia in the final, the gold medal match in the 50-over competition, which definitely raised a few eyebrows. And if you are 
to sort of unpack what's gone on here. There's been some allegations made, particularly from the Malaysian press and from the Malaysian Cricket Association as well, in regards to not only how this tournament was run, but also what or who uh, comprised Cambodia's gold medal winning team. Again, looking to some of the sleuth work of Burtis this week, made a point that just before that they were granted ICC membership in Cambodia, have only been an ICC member for less than a year. I think it was July last year they became ICC members. They sent a representative team to tour Singapore to play matches against the Singapore 11. The squad also went to Malaysia a couple of years going back. They lost all of those matches. And you'll find that there was only one common name between those tours and this Southeast Asian Games squad that featured. Now, we know that it's a topic of conversation in a lot of multi-sport events and it's not just in cricket, even at this particular edition of the Southeast Asian Games where we've seen people represent Cambodia with supposed Cambodian passports who have been fast-tracked to be eligible to compete in this competition. From what we understand, the men's and women's T20 competitions in this event were official T20Is, although the points have not been added in ICC rankings just yet. But uh, if you look at the Olympics website, who did some some news on this particular event, they made a comment that these matches were T20Is. So the team would have had to have fulfilled the eligibility requirements that the ICC have to hold T20 internationals. But what we have seen is a media report come out from the New Straight Times, and the headline reads... Hosts Cambodia make a mockery of cricket. The Malaysian Cricket Association came forward with a few comments in regards to what they felt was uh, some malpractice from Cambodia, questioned the appearance, uh, appearance of several players in the team and the tournament format, uh, which did not consider the world rankings of teams. Uh, Malaysia and Thailand on the men's side were drawn in the same groups of the 50 over T20 and T10 events. No crossover semifinals and the champions of each group fought for gold. The match fixtures were released daily as well. And that was the case up until day five of the competition. There was no uh, forewarning and the draw was not set out. In Malaysia's uh, opinion, it was not fair to the other teams in the competition. Fast forward to the final and we see Cambodia not only dominate the 50 over ranks, they also won the T20 competition. They finished second to Singapore in the men's sixes and they ended up winning the men's T10 competition as well. We know that Cambodia got to compete in every single discipline in this being the hosts. As we mentioned in the show a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the other nations at this tournament had to kind of pick and choose which competitions they want to play in. But Nick, to bring you in on on this one, it's, uh, it's very murky and I don't think we've heard the end of all of this it's certainly one that we'll be keeping an eye on uh what are your kind of early impressions as we do see some of these allegations come to light well it's interesting because a week ago i noticed on the wikipedia page for the tournament that uh some humorist had changed cambodia's uh you know every reference to cambodia on the page to india pakistan so clearly there were some salty malaysian fans or i don't know some salty opposition fans i'm not sure whether it was malaysia but malaysia seems like the obvious culprit here uh, in terms of um you know they're raising these these uh, allegations and you know at the time i just thought oh you know this is the, the same whinging that we always hear from every team when they lose to someone in in the region oh you know the indians in the team blah 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 but 
it seems like from these reports, it seems like there's a bit more substance to these allegations. And I mean, as you say, there's a lot going on. I, I think on the one hand, the claims around the scheduling is very fair. Uh, the scheduling was quite confusing. Very strange way they split up the groups. I mean, having f- four events uh, is kind of overkill. But yes, I mean, even if you're going to do that, there's probably more intuitive ways of, of running the tournaments than having these kind of different sized groups and who goes through to the bronze medal game and what it, like. It wasn't a very well organized, in my opinion. So I think that's a fair comment, especially if you are going to put teams that are kind of ranked similarly in the same group and have a weaker group on the other side. Of th- yeah. So the organizational things, I, I agree, uh, was not great. And then, of course, you know, we, we're getting to, you know, there's things like claim that the tournament technical director was harassing teams. That's just not acceptable in any event. So, you know, if that's true, yeah, that's definitely quite bad. So there's some things that seem, you know, kind of more legitimate. As for the eligibility stuff, I mean, that's interesting because the theory here is that the Cambodian players did get passports, but they were issued you know, a few days before the tournament started. Yeah, it was well after the deadline, wasn't it? I think the deadline was in March and, yes. and the passports were issued in April. Yes, yes. So, you know, if that's happened, then that's a violation of the tournament regulations and, you know, that's a problem as well. But just taking a step back, I think it's interesting if if that indeed is what happened, you know, they <laughs> sort of handed out a bunch of passports at the last minute. What's Cambodia's play here? Because cricket traditionally hasn't been a game where, you know, this sort of thing happens in athletics and, and football a fair bit with the, you know, governments handing out passports to athletes to, to try and <laughs> improve their country's team. But up until recently, it hasn't so much been an issue with cricket. Uh, it's been kind of a different thing with, you know, the passport player allegation is more around teams with a large diaspora, you know, someone like a, Netherlands being able to call upon players with Dutch heritage from overseas. Or large pockets. Well, that's the thing. Some of these countries do have deep pockets, but they just haven't bothered with cricket. The UAE and various Gulf countries do hand out passports to footballers because international football is is a much more of a prestige event. And so they're willing to pay to get these players into their into their system. Whereas I, I haven't seen it happen before with cricket. Not in this you know, as far as the allegations go, this is kind of like mass passport handing out in order to improve your cricket team, which which is pretty new. So that's that's an interesting development if that is indeed the case. So yeah, what's Cambodia's play? Because it seems like their organisation only got accredited by the ICC. I think it was last year or the year before. So they're pretty new on the scene. So yeah, I mean, maybe this is kind of a the cricket diplomacy thing from Cambodia and they're trying to push their way into the cricket scene, which which would be interesting if cricket is, is growing in that way as more of a prestige event. I think that's tying back to the previous discussion we were having around global development and, and franchises kind of pushing the game. If cricket is being seen as a sort of a prestige vehicle for for governments to to get a bit of um, reputation burnishing, maybe cricket can kind of tap into that and 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 try and move the game forward in that way. So yeah, the allegations themselves are, are worth investigating. And um, you put in your show notes uh, shades of Suriname. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. yeah, Suriname's kind of like the gold standard for these <laughs> these eligibility scandals. But it speaks to something quite interesting because Suriname weren't handing out passports. They just had a bunch of guys who basically weren't eligible and, and tried to lie about it. Whereas, yeah, if, if a team is actually handing out passports to improve their cricket, I don't know what to make of that. But as you say, however they ended up getting these guys into the team, they seem to have a pretty good team because, yeah, yeah they thrashed Malaysia in the final. Uh, they beat Singapore, who've traditionally been one of the better associates in the region, uh, on their way to the T20 gold medal. So, 
Yeah, I mean, Cambodia might well be uh, an emerging powerhouse in the region. It is astounding how well the team has actually played with the group that they've got, beating such reputable opponents. You know, that Singapore team on paper was almost stronger than the team that they sent to the ACC Premier Cup a couple of weeks back. And so too Malaysia. You look at that Malaysia squad and the bulk of those guys are the base of their international team. You know, the likes of Siders is Virandeep and Pavandeep Singh. It's fascinating watching this unfold from the outside. And I can tell you right now that this is not the last we'll, we'll hear about it. I think this is a developing story and be very important to keep a close eye on this because it's one of those things that could just fade away and you know if it's not for emerging cricket and a, and a couple of other sort of eagle-eyed people around the cricket world a lot of this stuff gets completely unnoticed uh and Cambodia didn't just do this for cricket I looked at some of their other teams that they put out for this multi-sport event and if you look at the volleyball team and the basketball team there's been market changes and personnel being injected into that team and if you look at the medal tallies of the entire event Cambodia have I think completely outdone themselves based on on previous finishes and and, and previous performances at the Southeast Asian Games yeah and I mean that's what we keep saying about the importance of cricket at multi-sport games obviously (laughs) just to be clear this is not an endorsement of teams cheating the system and and gaming the regulations and and whatever else but uh, just the idea that a nation like Cambodia you know, they're hosting the Southeast Asian Games, cricket's on the event list, suddenly they're interested in cricket and, you know, maybe they took a a dodgy shortcut and I I hope that is investigated, particularly by the ICC's eligibility uh, people because supposedly these games were meant to be official ICC games. But yeah, I mean, the fact that this sport is in a multi-sport games, medals are available, you know, suddenly teams are going to be paying attention to cricket. And that's why, obviously, the Olympics is the big one. But getting cricket into all these regional games, and we'll we'll talk about the the Asian games in a minute, it's so important and and cricket needs to keep pushing for that. Yeah, just some other news bits and pieces from around the competition. Vietnam wanted to be a part of this competition, but uh, were unable to be granted the sufficient funding by the Vietnamese government. And that's another consequence of not being an ICC member in the case of Vietnam, who you would think with the legitimacy of being an ICC member, you would think that that wouldn't happen in uh, in the future. So hopefully, you know, for, for their sake, they can push on to, to become an ICC member to alleviate things like this. I do know that I, th- I think that there were or they've been in the process of of lodging their application to be a part of the ICC. I actually thought they might have been members last year and and didn't quite get the chance to be brought in. Uh, Indonesia, I think, was a a good news story on the women's side, and we know that Mm. that Thailand are dominant uh, in this region on the women's side of things. But Indonesia, once again, showing some growth here. We know that they were the Under-19 Cricket World Cup, Women's Cricket World Cup. At the beginning of the year, they've started to make inroads uh, on the senior side of things. Philippines were a good rival there as well. And I think Myanmar even chimed in and, and won a medal at one of the events as well. So, look, yes, this is very much Thailand's domain, and it probably will be for some time, but you'd probably say that there was enough quality around the, the rest of the group to, to show that it might not just be all of Thailand all of the time going forward in the region? Yeah, 
Indonesia especially, and, and they're one that we've been keeping an eye on in the region for a couple of years now. They've, they've been significantly improving, and they won the silver medal in 50-over cricket, they won the silver medal in 20-over cricket, and they won the gold medal in the sixes. So they had a pretty good tournament. Players like, yeah, Maria Corazon coming through with the bat, which is going to be important uh, as, as we know, you know, batting is always such a challenge for these associate teams. Very encouraging signs. The gold medal match in the 50-over tournament, yes, they lost by nearly 100 runs. You know, Chinita Sudarang and co. bowled them out for 37, but they restricted Thailand to 130, which is a difficult thing to do. Because Thailand, at this level especially, their their batters are a class above. So that's probably the performance that caught my eye the most, honestly. And the Indonesian bowling has just been so convincing throughout the tournament in, in a couple of different formats. Yes, they lost uh, pretty heavily, but I, I think, you know, we've seen a couple of years of been getting better and finding good talent uh, throughout their local development programs. And I think if you're interested in uh, women's development and... Thailand is sort of the big story in the region, but you know Indonesia, are, they're, they're making a pretty good case to be uh, coming up fairly close behind them. They thrashed Singapore uh, as well, and Singapore, you know, they're not to be sneezed at at this level uh, in women's cricket. So, yeah, I think Thailand uh, sort of reconfirmed their place as, as the best team by a pretty big distance, but Indonesia, I was very impressed with on the women's side. Yeah, one interesting point I would say is that the Cambodian women's team I guess we can say they're not passport players in the same way. So I, I don't know what that says about the <laughs> the Cambodian government, that they're willing to spend the money on uh, passport players for the men's side, but not the women's side. Uh, but I guess we can kind of leave that. I don't know too much about Cambodian society, so I won't venture to, uh, to comment on that. But I, I just thought that was an interesting point to note. Yeah, fair point. And I think one thing I, I will add too is that you know, not so long ago, Malaysia played against Thailand and bowled them out for 52, I think it was. And for a second, we thought that Malaysia were going to surprise Thailand only for Thailand to bowl Malaysia out for 40 and win the game by 12 runs. And Malaysia didn't do any better than a, a bronze medal, I don't think, on the women's side of things, which tells me that, yeah, between a lot of these women's teams at this level under Thailand, there is definitely a lot of competition there. And we know it's been a theme of, of shows in weeks gone by, you know, say the, the golf women's international teams, the East African women's teams and parts of Asia now too, where competitions like this are going to be so vital in developing the game at international level, because this is the best opportunity for these teams to compete against each other. And it's the collective strength and the collective competition against each other that ultimately breeds the the quality in the international game and we're starting to see the fruits of that and again if you if you need to see the end result of that go to africa and, and look at what goes on there between you know the kubuka tournament the victoria series the capricorn series you know just off the top of my head that's three international tournaments that uh, are played out just about every year i know covid's got in the way of that but that's the framework and, and that's what uh, we'll probably need to see in, in this region if teams are to succeed. We'll keep it in Asia uh, and look towards the East Asian Championship on the women's side. Uh, Hangzhou is hosting this tournament and it's good preparation for the Asian Games. There is a, a little bit more at play in terms of who qualifies for the Asian Games. It's a little bit more rigid in its structure. Doesn't 
quite have the same troubles and difficulties in all of this that the Southeast Asian Games had over the past couple of weeks. We see Hong Kong uh, going to that, the People's Republic of China and Japan. South Korea not sending a team, which is a little bit disappointed, a little bit disappointing, I should say. Uh, but this is a good sort of test event for all of these teams with the uh, Asian Games on the horizon, also in Hangzhou, and also a test of uh, the new venue there in China. Yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting tournament. I, I like that they've been running it most years, I think, for, for a little while. Um, yeah, as you say, disappointing that Korea couldn't make it. But good to see China back on the field. Obviously, they'll be competing at the Asian Games. And I think the women's team, well, and their men's team, haven't played any ICC cricket for, well, a, a number of years due to COVID and, and the Chinese government's strict uh, lockdown policies. And, you know, they weren't really letting the team travel or letting anyone in to China. So uh, it's good to see them, yeah, back on the field and uh, and competitive. As you say, the eligibility discussion we we're having earlier with the uh, Southeast Asia Games flows onto this team selection here with Hong Kong, who, according to the news reports, were saying that they were basically selecting players who are eligible to play in the Asian Games. I'm not 100% sure how that relates to citizenship and, and whatnot, because to quote the article from the South China Morning Post, uh, missing this time will be the likes of Mariko Hill and Natasha Miles, with a focus placed on players who are qualified to represent the city at the multi-sport games in September. That's interesting to me because the implication seems to be that you know Mariko Hill and, and Tash Miles are not qualified to represent the city, but they were both born and raised in Hong Kong and before handover as well. So presumably they have uh, Hong Kong British passports. So I'm not 100% sure how that works, but whether that means they're not eligible or whether it's kind of two unrelated ideas and and whether Hong Kong's just sort of testing out a few more kind of fringe players uh, will be interesting to see. But yeah, I mean, you know, Kerry Chan leading Betty Chan in the team as usual. Emma Lai's back. Cindy Ho hasn't played for a little bit, so good, good to see her back in the team. But yeah, it, it will be pretty competitive, I think, with Japan. Um, their team has uh, also basically been selected with the uh, with the Asian Games in mind um, and also the venue as well so I'm very curious to see how to see how the venue actually plays because I, I think this is the first time the ground has been used it was a, a new sort of purpose-built facility for the games so whether you know whether the pitches have been got up to standard yet I, I'm not sure I don't actually know much about the groundskeeping process that they had in in the lead up to this. Um, so yeah, I think that's one to keep an eye on. Whether we see some, is it going to be a road? Is it going to be a minefield? What's going to happen? It could be interesting to watch uh, on that front. Twenty fifth to the twenty eighth of May, that competition, the East Asia Championship, will run. It's a double round robin event as well. Moving to the men's side in Asia and another team preparing for the Asian Games is the Japan men's national team. They hosted a Sri Lankan emerging side in Sano over the last week. I must say I really enjoyed watching this uh, on the streams that the JCA put up. They had both uh, an English commentary stream and a Japanese mm. commentary stream. I, I found the Japanese one by accident and I was watching it for about two minutes and realised that it wasn't in English and uh, had to quickly race to the uh, the other side. My year eight and year nine Japanese wasn't going to help me there, unfortunately. But Sri Lanka winning the series 4-0. It was a five-match series. The last match was washed out. They jumped to a, a 2-0 lead in, in quick time. The second match was a, a rout 
uh, if you were to look at the score. But I think watching the most part of this series, I think Japan certainly had their moments and I think they definitely would have got a lot out of this particular series. They did rotate a lot of guys. I think they played over 20 players. It might have been 22 players over the course of the four matches. Uh, Kendall Kadawaki Fleming, the captain, I think might have only been the only player to play all four matches. They had some uh, availability issues. There was a couple of midweek games there. Uh, And they also want to test players out because they've got a, a similar situation to Hong Kong where not all the players that qualify for the Japan men's national cricket team in ICC tournaments, not all of those players also qualify under the Asian Games eligibility rules. So it meant that there were a number of players here that were in and out of the team. They just wanted to kind of give everyone a go. I thought the bowling overall was excellent. They kept uh, Sri Lanka at bay with a number of scores in the 120s. The wicket was, in terms of the bounce, maybe a little bit inconsistent. A couple of balls shooting low, a couple of balls sort of kicking up off a length, which made batting a little bit difficult. But the bowling was good on the Japanese side. Just unfortunate, not really doing enough with the bat to, to put a serious challenge together against the Sri Lankan side. But I think both teams got a lot out of this. And I think this is definitely the blueprint, Nick, of of what we want to see in future. We want to see established full members who are sending you know, these teams. I think none of the Sri Lankan players were older than 23. It looked like that they got a fair bit out of this. You know, They can tell great stories about uh, what Sano is and the Sano International you know, cricketing facility there. Uh, the hospitality, by all reports, was great. I'm sure they got a lot of that, a lot out of it. And moving it back to Japan, it's good preparation with not only the Asian Games, but also the East Asia Pacific qualifier for the uh, T20 World Cup for 2024 coming up. That's at the end of July, Nick. Yes, I, I thought this was a, a great initiative. Um, and congratulations to well to Sri Lanka for sending the team and, and to the guys at the JCA, the, the Japan Cricket Association, for being able to organise it. Um, I, I think, as you say, both teams got a lot out of it. Um, and, you know, yes, Japan lost every game, but... They rotated a lot of players. They got to see uh, a lot of players in action. They got to see some some good performances. Um, you know, the, the the batting, as you say, was probably the weak point. Um, you know, Kendall Katawaki uh, Fleming was the only one who really put up much resistance in most of the matches. Uh, I, I think that's definitely a concern going forward. But at the same time, their bowling has been impressive, better than I expected. Uh, yes, the pitch was <laughs> a little bit challenging, but, you know, at the same time, the Sri Lankans didn't run away with it. And, you know, you look at the scorelines, four-wicket victory, bowled them out for 120-odd, five-wicket victory. You know, they, they, they weren't totally dominating. So, yeah, they can definitely get a, a lot of uh, take a lot of confidence out of it. And it was interesting to see some kind of fringe Japanese players. Um, obviously, we, you know, we've heard of guys like... Uh, Sakurano and, and, and Takahashi and, and Kento Dobell and you know a number of these guys who, who we've seen play for the senior team but you know also having some of the the under 19s players coming through um, and, and guys who were sort of under 19s a few years ago like uh, Kohei Kabuta had a good performance um, he's he's been sort of in and out of the team a little bit uh, very promising uh, good facilities as well in, in Sano um, so hopefully this is kind of a proof of concept and and you know the JCA can can go out to other boards and, and try and get some quality opposition for their guys uh, and girls uh, I know the the Japanese women are playing the East Asia championship but uh, 
you know, if we can get something along the similar lines or maybe even like the Indigenous tour to Vanuatu where, you know, a, a full member will send a, a, a team, a, a men's and women's team, uh, you know, something like that. So I, I think, yeah, very promising and uh, yeah, good to see the stream. You know, I absolutely love the Japanese commentary. I think that's so important uh, in, in these uh, developing countries uh, for the game. Argentina had something like that in their sort of warm-up series against Bermuda before the Americas qualifier. You know, just just hearing cricket spoken about in the local language is, is such an important thing for, uh, you, you know, getting people to pay attention to it. And so I, I'm, I think that's a great initiative. And um, yeah, congratulations to the JCA for a, for a great event. Yeah, it's powerful, isn't it? Hearing cricket and its uh, lexicon and, and it, it kind of takes new form when it gets translated into a new language. I know uh, in parts of the Spanish-speaking world, especially in Latin America, I think it was Cricket Peru who did and Cricket Mexico who uh, ensured that they kind of had their own, almost their own brand of, of cricket terminology, not only to give it their own kind of personal spin, but to also bring in a new audience who are, you know, already finding it hard to understand a new game, let alone when, you know, the lingua franca is English and, and a second language for, for most people out there. And yeah, the Japanese commentary, it, it, it's so even listening to someone like Peter Della Pena commentate in an American accent, I think is powerful enough for the American community, let alone when you put it into a different language. Shout out to the boys at the JCA doing, you know, an unbelievable job. Alan Kerr was on, on the call for most of the series as well. Uh, Nami Alex Miyagi, we know, does a great job in Japan and uh, was taking plenty of notes with the East Asia Pacific qualifier coming up. Plenty to, to look forward to in that tournament, you know, the four-team tournament uh, with one automatic spot for the T20 World Cup up for grabs. You know, we would put PNG as the heavy favourite to that competition, but Philippines, Vanuatu and Japan will certainly not make it easy for the so-called giants of the region from an associate level uh, there's a couple of other things probably I, I picked up on. I love the way that Ibrahim Takahashi goes about his business bowling his offspin. If you haven't seen him bowl, he's a little bit, almost a little bit Graham Swan-esque with the way he runs in, a little bit in his delivery stride as well. Uh, so keep an eye out on him. We saw uh, Shogo Kumura again uh, playing, quote-unquote, international cricket for Japan. We know about his story as the, the converted baseball. They gave a lot of guys... Uh, a go, Kenta DeBell is a name that you mentioned. Uh, Marcus Thurgate played in the series as well. We know that he was the, the captain in the under-19s Cricket World Cup in 2020. Slid down the order in the games that he played, which might be a nod to him potentially playing in death-over situations with the bat. We'll potentially see that pan out uh, in PNG later in the year as well. But yeah, a lot of positives. I, I don't know that the 4-0 result might not look fantastic on paper, but uh, I thought they were a little bit better than that and might have deserved to jag uh, a victory there. Moving along, and as we know, Tim and Vanuatu hosted the Australian Indigenous teams over the last couple of weeks in Port Vila. We managed to catch up with Tim briefly as he wrapped the entirety of that series at the VCG. Uh, first of all, Tim, uh, congratulations on a great series. It looks good from the outside, watching on both the streams and uh, a number of sort of colour pieces that were put around on social media. It looked hugely beneficial for, for, for both teams. Tell us about the, the atmosphere and, and some of the stories that, that panned out over the, over the course of the tour. Well, the atmosphere was really set from 
day one when the Malvatu Murray, who are the Council of Chiefs in Vanuatu, had a traditional welcome for the squads at the airport, which was something to behold. There were a lot of sort of bemused travellers coming through wondering if this massive welcome was for them, but to have some of the most senior chiefs in the country there welcoming the players and it just got better from there, really. That was all supported by the Vanuatu Tourism Office at the airport as well and the VTO helped pay for some of the welcome ceremony at the Holiday Inn with fire dance and um, reception there and they put on a Melanesian night at Moorings Hotel in, in town on the on the Saturday night and that sort of spilt into Banyan Bar next door and spilt into other places of disrepute after um, and then on the Sunday the rest day well the only rest day that um, the Aussie teams had they put on three tourist buses and took them all the way around to Fate Island for about a five-hour tour, stopping at various points of interest around. So I think from that, they had a really, really cool time. There was also some cricket played, apparently, but uh, there's a big rope swing at the uh, the Blue Lagoon in uh, in uh, on the other side of the island. I think there were some non non cricket related injuries there, but people were using rope swings for the first time since they were since they were kids. Um, but I think you know, the, the best part was really just the exchange of the players meeting each other and seeing people from different cultures but also different ways of playing the game. And I think from the first time everyone met, everybody just really gelled. And you could tell by the end, you know, it was just a, a mix of everyone, whether it was after a game um, or out and about um, afterwards. And I think there's some new friendships there that will last a long time, hopefully. And then I think each team and every player got something out of it on the field as well and i guess turning to uh, more of an on-field kind of question you know how, how much has this series helped grow uh well especially the women's side who who do sometimes struggle for fixtures and i mean the men's team we've heard about a number of guys going overseas to work and and so they're a little bit depleted so i mean just getting on the field and and playing some good quality opposition surely that's very helpful yeah that series are going to be so beneficial for for both teams i guess in the in the short term for the men the fact that the, the men are off to png in two months time uh, one step away from a world cup the closest any vanuatu sporting team has ever been to a senior uh, world cup and to be playing against i think was probably some of the best cricketers that they've or the best team they've come up against i think going back and thinking about challenge league and seeing Canada at their best but a couple of guys bowling 150 would be close but overall you know this these two indigenous teams or especially the men's team are full of guys playing premier cricket and second 11 cricket um, and it was just really great to see our teams come up against teams of this quality and on the women's side as well which is, is great you know coming up to a World Cup qualifier later this year for our women's side in T20 again to come up against players BBL standard um, and class all across, across the park. And then you take into account that you know, we had those four players missing who are in Australia, you know, huge names, Mansale, Matautava, Kautapo and, and Apo, um, to see that the team pull together um, really bodes well for the future and what uh, the squad may look like in PNG. We saw the amazing win on the men's side, Tim, uh, and some of the celebrations around it but uh yeah paint us a picture as to as to how the boys were feeling and and the the celebrations of of the team after such a a great success well what a what what a win that saturday was in the end and i still think you know women should have won 
the first game and our men were in positions where they just lost a few key moments. But if our teams were only going to win one game, I think that game on the Saturday afternoon that men won would have been the one that I would have chosen with the, the crowd there watching, over 100 people in the crowd cheering. And I think you could hear it on the stream as well. It was the only day that the, the stream worked. Um, you know, to defend a total like they did, 107, the spinners to bowl so well for a boundary not to be hit by Australia after I think it was 7.4 overs and some great catching. Again, I don't think you'll see it all on the stream because someone was square, but some great catches taken running around the rope. Um, and it was just, I was just really proud, really, <laughs> although I'm not out there and I'm not coaching. Um, just really excited. Some Some big hugs were had after that. Um, even the CEO might have might have entered into a hug or two, but uh, no, that was really good. Just really happy for everything that the team's come up against with those four players missing um, and for them to, to come up against a team like this. And, and the more we have spoken with the, the Aussie management and players, they were just really impressed with how our men played and kept the pressure on how they bowled how they how they fielded and, and yes the wicket was probably not as good as it was in the men's t20 qualifier back in september but as the aussie said themselves this is great experience for players getting to bat on on wickets that aren't just perfect you know but hit through the line but you've actually got to wait and watch and and use your other skill sets so the celebrations well that was the night of the the melanesian night um that ended up for some of us um, quite late uh, various places but again it just showed how well everyone had gelled the fact that combined squads were, were out and about now as much as we sometimes have a problem with you know major full member boards uh, it has to be said that Cricket Australia in this case have been very helpful uh, talk to us about kind of the relationship that uh, Vanuatu Cricket's trying to build here and maybe even if there's any reciprocal opportunities and, and trying to send you know, I know some players do already play in Australia, but if there's maybe the appetite for a tour to Australia with the Vanuatu team. There's already chatter about what, what comes next. Hopefully there's going to be opportunity for one of our teams or at least one of our teams to, to stop off in Australia. Um, but that's just very early chat. Um, only to say that I think we've, we've really put ourselves in a great position to be front of mind when they're considering... Um, similar series whether home or away but I'm also aware that there's a whole Pacific here especially in the East Asia Pacific as well the region that Australia's in that would also love to host a tour like this so it's not a matter of trying to take this away from someone else but any involvement that Vanuatu can have would just be be great and to have some future in this relationship um, is only going to benefit both parties I think. Uh, We saw Ronald Tari take over the captaincy for this particular tour with uh a number of players out, Patrick Matt Altava out, Junior Kautzbau out uh, on seasonal work and a few other guys. Uh, how do you think he, he went as a uh, skipper? He seems to be a, a pretty mature figure and, and a leader of men. You know, we've mentioned the players being being away, fruit picking, and so they left a huge hole leadership-wise from Fiji. There was a player coach and Andrew Mansali away, captain Patrick Matt Altava, vice-captain, Junior Kautapo not there, so there's a huge void there, and that was really filled by a group of of leaders. You know, Jamal stood up, and he was just so amazing during the entire series, before, during, and after. You know, he already looks after all cricket and events, um, facilities, um, HR. He's sort of the legal kind of perspective as well on on things, uh, but then he also stepped up to 
look after the high performance programs, coach the women, uh, more or less coach the men as well. But that was sort of a group between him, Ronnie and, and Rasu. Um, so whilst Ronnie was tossing the coin, I think it really was a, a group effort there in leading the team on the field. I think Jared was also quite instrumental out there in helping with angles. You know, Jared kept for the first two matches and, and Jamal for the, the second two, which I think was good to share between our our two best skippers. And it was also good to see a couple of guys come back into the squad who hadn't been Kenny Tari, who's been in and around the squad for a long time and has, I think you could say, graduated from working on the ground to coming back into the squad. And then Tony Tomata, who was dropped from the squad at the end of 2021 uh, to come back in and to, to bowl quite well, I think, in the game that uh, that he played. I think we've just showed that we can host teams of, of this calibre and, you know, anyone connected to a, to a full member touring here, you always sort of think, well, geez, we're going to make sure that we get the standards up here because of the things that they're used to that maybe you you put up with or at least just um, deal with in a, an associate cricket nation you know whether it's facilities at the ground or whatever but look they were really really happy and I, you know you get to a point where you know people aren't just being polite that they're actually genuinely happy and thankful and I think that's where we were with the the CA team so if we can do anything like this again in the future whether it's an indigenous team from Australia or for indeed from New Zealand um, with the conversations around the Pacific Cup getting um, getting stronger as well how that will look like in the future with a with a New Zealand Maori uh, involvement hopefully but uh but who knows but the, the problem is as well as we look into the future is how packed our our schedules are you know under 19s are in darwin next month the, the men are in png at the the back end of july the women have their qualifier august september there's only so much space for for teams to come in so it's a matter of fitting that into as well and i guess it's something as we look forward to 2024 and beyond Huge thanks for Tim to jump on and have a quick chat with us. We know how busy he's been over the past couple of months uh, getting everything in order in Vanuatu. And they too will be at the East Asia Pacific Qualifier uh, like Japan are in July in Papua New Guinea. Pleasure as always to talk emerging cricket with you, Nick. Good luck with your uh, endeavours to get into Denmark and continue your uh, travels in the Nordic region of the world. The Nordic T20, uh, bringing it back to cricket, that mm. started uh, as well, as we recall. We'll probably talk about that next week. But uh, good to have you on again, talking all things emerging cricket, Nick. Yeah, and uh, it's good that there's always some cricket going on. And how good is it that there's these these two big multi-sport games happening uh, in quick succession? Yeah, yeah. Never a dull moment in, in emerging cricket, both on and off the field, evidently, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, to ensure you're always up to date with the emerging game, make sure to log on to emergingcricket.com. Uh, give us a five-star review uh, wherever you are listening to the pod, assuming that we are five stars in your heart as well. Uh, but once again, uh, a pleasure to have you listening again into the Emerging Cricket Podcast, and we'll talk to you next week.